Good morning, everybody. Hey, if you haven't got our new banking details, grab one of these, please. Uh, this has got all the info you need on there, and you can access it there. I know someone's already asked for this one, so I'm going to pass it along. Um, but if I've never met you, my name is Luke. Hello, I'm back. Um, we're on camera for the message, a part of the meeting as well. Um, my name is Luke, and it's a privilege to share with you a really uh, different, hopefully interesting, uh, something different message today. Uh, I'm going to try something I've never done before uh, in church. I'll tell you in a second what it is. Um, we've been as a church working through the book of the Bible that is 2 Corinthians. And uh, next week we'll pick up our 2 Corinthians series. We've taken a bit of a break over the last few weeks. But uh, I've had the privilege of writing so far, I think, about 11 messages in this series. And um, quite a lot while I'm writing these messages, I find myself paraphrasing the Apostle Paul's words time after time after time um, as I've uh, freshly understood the meaning of what he's trying to say and even verbalizing them, you might have noticed from time to time in my preaching. And so what I've done today is uh, I want to encourage you first, open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 1. I have tried to I've taken the, the, the letter that is 2 Corinthians, uh, and I've gone from chapter 1 to chapter 5, and I've paraphrased it in ordinary English, like you and I speak, understanding the meaning of what Paul was trying to communicate. And I'm going to share with you today, uh, as if I were Paul, speaking Paul's meaning to us as a church. Five chapters of Scripture, uh, a little bit different, okay? And so think of it as a, almost a monologue. And I've woven through phrases from your Bible so that you can pick up as you go along. I would encourage you to follow along and do it on your device. Just switch off your notifications because uh, i got a phone call now during worship as well. Um, that happens, uh, so you don't get distracted. But I'm going to attempt to speak as if I were Paul to us as the church in Corinth, the meaning of what Paul was speaking to the church. Does that make sense? Okay, so here's the context to the book. If you're new to this letter, maybe you're visiting, hey, what's 2 Corinthians all about? Let me give you the context of the book. The dilemma is that the church has lost confidence in their apostle Paul. Uh, the church's monologue, if you will, would say to one another, why should we even listen to this guy Paul? Is he even worth giving our attention to? Look how boldly he preaches, yet at the same time, look how weak he is. He's so tough when he calls us from our sinfulness, but look how feeble he is. It, it must be that because he's so weak, he shouldn't be able to be bold. His boldness is at best misguided. And this is the kind of thinking that Paul is trying to address when he's speaking to the church in Corinth. The background is that Paul actually planted the church in Corinth. And after some time, Paul moved away and continued his ministry exploits. It wasn't long, though, before the church went walkabout. If that was a, a show on Netflix, it would be called Church Gone Wild, right? And, uh, and this is what starts to happen. And so Paul writes them the letter that is in your Bible as 1 Corinthians, right? Uh, and, and in 1 Corinthians, he's trying to call the church back. He's saying, guys, you've gone astray. Come back, come back. Uh, and they didn't respond too well. And so after writing then that letter, Paul comes to visit the church in what's called the painful visit. Didn't go so well. He actually left early because things went so badly. Then after the painful visit, Paul wrote them what's called the severe letter. 
The severe letter is not in our Bibles. We don't know what it is. Um, uh, but uh, this was a, he talked really tough calling the church from their sinfulness. So you've got 1 Corinthians in your Bible, then subsequently to that, the painful visit, then subsequently to that, the severe letter, and then we have 2 Corinthians, which is in your Bible. So there's quite a lot that happened in between, right? And after writing them the severe letter where Paul pulls no punches and he calls the church who's gone wild back from their waywardness, Many turned back, but also many didn't, and they started working against Paul, trying to get the church to kind of follow these other super successful apostle-type people, and, uh, and they began promoting these other apostles, and obviously there were some in the middle who were on the fence, which way are we going to go? And so Paul writes the letter that we're reading together to Corinthians with a view to reconciling the church and reestablishing his relationship with them. The bottom line is it's a, it's a case of the world has crept into the church. The city of Corinth has got a vision of the good life. Everybody is chasing the good life. What is the good life? Success, security, prosperity, and comfort. I'm so glad we've moved on since then, right? Uh, and Paul needs to correct this vision that people are living for, living for the good life. Here's Paul's problem, though. Paul's life is nothing like the good life. Paul is called to do one thing with his life. What's that? Preach the gospel. What happens when you preach the gospel in a world that crucified Jesus? Imprisonment, persecution, opposition, basically perpetual suffering. And perpetual suffering meant that Paul became weak and Paul became feeble. He became unimpressive to a church who is chasing after the good life. And so the more Paul preaches, the weaker he becomes. The weaker Paul becomes, the more his life looks like the bad life. And, uh, and, and the church increasingly chasing the good life want to dismiss him and find some other super successful kind of apostles. And so Paul writes the letter to the church to try and win them back. So let's take this off and hopefully I don't pull my microphone off. There we go. Okay, so you might want to follow along in your Bibles. We are in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. Are you ready? I'm setting my timer. Okay. So remember, just quickly in summary, in summary, the church is following the idol of the good life. Paul's life is called to preach. The more he preaches, the weaker he becomes. The weaker he becomes, the less his life looks attractive. The less his life looks attractive, the more the church that's got a vision of the good life wants to go, mm, Paul, we don't want to listen to you anymore. Let's find someone else who we think is worth following. Paul, you're so weak. And so Paul starts off in 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8, says, friends, you think I'm weak, you don't know the half of it. You don't even know how rough it was for me when I was down in Asia. I thought I was strong. I thought I was independent. I thought I was like you, that I could handle anything that the persecutors would throw at me. But it turns out I'm even weaker than I thought. But it was there in my weakness that I realized that I don't have what it takes. It was there burdened to the edge of life itself that I came to realize while I was busy tapping out that I discovered the grace of God was sustaining me all the time. It was there in my suffering and my trial that I discovered that God's power was at work within me, carrying me. It was there that I learned not to rely on myself, but I learned to rely on Christ. And so that's why I've set my hope on Christ, not on my own strength, 
not on my own ability. He is my deliverer. He's rescued me so many times. In fact, that's, no, that's how I know that he will rescue me with certainty from even this calamity that I'm in now, though it's not from my strength, but through his work. So please, church, will you pray for me? Because it's, because it's by his power I need your prayers. You see, you are invested in my deliverance. Oh, how I wish you would just look at me and boast with confidence again. But it seems you see my weaknesses and you're more embarrassed of me. Yet look closely, guys. I live a simple life. In all my dealings with you and even all my dealings with others, I've lived with integrity. My integrity has always been intact. I know it's not success in the eyes of the world, but surely it should mean something to you as a church. You see, my confidence doesn't rest on my outward success. It rests upon Christ, who he himself is my deliverer. And so therefore my hope is set on Christ. I fear nothing in the future. I know things have been complicated between us. Since my last visit, some of you don't even think you should trust me anymore. But even though things didn't go well when I visited you, 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 you must know my intentions were always to do well by you. I had to leave in a hurry before things got even worse. But guys, I'm not just walking away from you as a church. I'm invested in us. God has, through his working, knit us together. He is the orchestrator of our partnership in ministry. He's put you as a church into my heart, and he's put me as an apostle into your heart as well for the long term. I'm convinced of this because God's spirit is like the oil that's going to remove the friction between us and bring about unity again amongst us. But I also couldn't pretend that you weren't caught in sin. Although it would have been easier, I wouldn't have been serving you at all. So it was through tears and anguish that I wrote to you the severe letter to call you home. I was firm with you because your sin was serious in the hope that you would repent and once again find your joy in Jesus. You've got to see this though. All my efforts, though tough as they may have seemed, are rooted in love for you. That's why I'm so glad that so many of you responded so well. Now, what about the one who caused all this trouble? It's chapter two, verse five. Seems that the guilt of being exposed before everyone has been disciplined enough. Remember in all of this, the goal isn't punishment, but reconciliation. So please forgive him and comfort him. The danger here is that his mistake causes such shame in his life that it allows the devil to lead him in, in shame from the community. Gospel culture is a restorative culture. I've already forgiven him, so please do the same and go further. Reaffirm your love for him too. Guys, you can't imagine how I've struggled because of the strain in our relationship. When I came to Troas, God opened a gospel opportunity wide for me to work through. Uh, there, were, there were people to be preached to, and, it, and they seemed receptive to the gospel, but I couldn't take it. I couldn't walk through the door. God opened for me. Rather, I sat there chewing my nails waiting for Titus to come and bring me news of how you guys had responded to the letter of tears that I wrote to you. And when he was late, I was so restless. I was in such anguish that I couldn't even concentrate. I couldn't bring myself to focus. Eventually, I just gave up and left the door and went on to Macedonia. Friends, you think I'm weak. You don't even know the half of my weakness. But I'm also bold. 
I'm bold because Christ has conquered me. I was an enemy of God. I was on the way to oppose the gospel, and Jesus struck me down, and he won my heart. Uh, There's no other way to say it. Christ has conquered me. He has won my heart, and now I'm like a prisoner of war. I'm being led by Christ down to my own death, learning day by day to die to myself as I'm being led on to resurrection life in Christ. Like a slave of Christ, I'm being led in a party, a procession of gratitude. And while I go, we preach his praises as he leads us. To some, I'm a messenger of life. To others, the smell of death. But of this, I am sure he has conquered me. I am not in it for me. I'm a slave conquered by Christ, daily being led to my death as I pour out my life in service of others. Do I really need to introduce myself to you again? As if I should get all the apostles to write a letter of recommendation to you on my behalf. Guys, I planted you as a church. You yourselves are my letter of credibility. I was like a pen in the hand of Christ who was the author writing a letter of transformation on all of your hearts. He was writing with the permanent ink of the Holy Spirit transforming you. That's why I keep boldly calling you as a church toward repentance because you were transformed by the permanent ink of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't my doing, Paul, but it was God himself at work in you. And so my confidence in ministry is not in my ability to preach well. No, rather, it's in the working of God himself, God's transforming power and the Spirit's lasting work. Of course, I'm going to be boldly calling you from your sin. Christ is at work in you. Think about it. Even Moses radiated the glory of God, and he was under the old covenant. As wonderful as the law was, the law could only teach. It couldn't transform your hearts. Moses learned what was right from wrong, but his heart remained unchanged. Even with an unchanged heart, yet Moses radiated God's glory. Now you, and in you, the lantern of the law is being eclipsed by the dawn of the age of the Spirit. Of course I'm bold. They were sinful, so Moses had to hide the glory that rested upon them with a veil. But you have been acquitted of guilt, church. You have been made into the righteousness of God. You are created, recreated to radiate God's glory. And so the Spirit is at work within you. Bit by bit, the Spirit is transforming you as you keep your gaze on Christ. As you look at Him, more and more you become like Him, ever growing in radiance of Christ yourself. You see, that's why I'm free to call you from your waywardness. That's why I'm so bold, because you're not condemned for your sinfulness. No, you're in the process of becoming like Christ. Chapter 4, verse 1. Also, that's why I can't become cowardly and timid. My whole ministry is given to me by, by God's grace. Remember, I was an enemy of God. I was on my way to persecute Christ, and He conquered me. Now, He's made me, who was an enemy, into an apostle. Surely, you can see this is all by God's grace. I did nothing to deserve this. That's why I've got no right to tamper with the gospel message. I can't fudge the truth. I can't put my own spin on it. Uh, it, I can't make people respond to the gospel. The gospel itself brings every person to a fork in the road. To some, it is offensive because Satan has blinded them. He's blinded them. How can a culture obsessed with the good life fall in love with a poor, humble, crucified 
Messiah. Only God can save people. So I'm not trying like the other gospel peddlers to be slick, to be sly, and to get people in. No, no, no. My faith rests on Christ, both as the content and as the power of my message. Christ is the one who conquers all of us. And so I'm bold because it's not about me. I'm only the packaging. I'm only the packaging. Christ is the treasure inside. I'm like a jar of clay, cheap, disposable, prone to break and brittle. Yet within us, we carry the most powerful and precious treasure of all. If you think I'm weak, you do not even know the half of it. I'm constantly under pressure. I'm barely holding it together. Yet in the midst of all this pressure, in the, middle, in the midst of all this cracking that I feel, it is He who holds me. It is He who sees me and sustains me through every trial and every persecution, every opposition and every disappointment. In fact, the worse it gets, the tighter I feel him hold me and sustain me. The more I preach, the more I suffer. The more I suffer, the weaker I get. The weaker I get, the more I experience Christ sustaining me. But my suffering is not the loudest voice in my life. I endure because the more I preach, the more others come to see the light too. It is for others' sake that I keep going. True, I do suffer, but it's true. The, the more I suffer, I mean, the more I preach, the more I suffer. But it's also true, the more I preach, the more others come into, into the light and come into the love of God. And, 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 and others coming to faith and life in God is louder and more important to me even than my own suffering. Because suffering cannot ultimately hurt me. I live for more than my own wellness. I am pouring out my life for the sake of others, others like you. That's why I don't lose heart. Can I tell you a secret? There's nothing this world can do to ultimately hurt me. They can beat me, they can stone me, they can lock me up. I am only wasting away on the outside because inwardly Christ renews me every single day. All the suffering that I'm enduring now has got an expiry date, but the fruit that comes through the preaching will last forever. So please don't look at me on the outside. Please, please don't just see the weakness on the outside. You need to look through that into who I am in Christ and see the real me there hidden in Christ. You see, it's your Corinthian ruined eyes that you cannot see the real me. Down here I am wasting away, but locked away in heaven is the real me resurrected in the power of Christ, radiating glory for all of eternity and glory that has in some way been enhanced through the, through the suffering and the trials that I've endured for the sake of Christ. If you only had eyes to see, eyes of faith, you would look through my feeble and weak body and you would see the real me hidden in Christ, resurrected in Jesus, secure where no one could ever touch it. Every blow that makes me weaker here makes me radiate glory there. Church, you're looking in the wrong place Look at me there, and then you will see the cause of my boldness. You see, really, I'm living away from home here. Chapter 5, verse 1. I groan, I long, I long for the day when I will be with Jesus, when I will see him, where this broken body, this broken tent will be gone, and I will be with Christ, and he will have given me a new resurrected body, made not by human hands, but by Christ himself. And I know this is true because I have experienced undeniably the power of the Spirit at work in my broken body now, which points to that resurrection body to come in the future. And when we get there, you know what the most incredible thing of all is going to be? It's going to be seeing Jesus. 
I live now on earth as one on a visa. Every imprisonment threatens to revoke my visa and send me home. So I'm going to make the most of every opportunity that Christ affords me. Because I know that soon enough I will stand before him. In fact, we will all stand before Christ and give an account for the life that we lived away from him in these earthly tent-like bodies. And so for now, I live every day here in anticipation of that day before him with a clear conscience knowing I have been faithful to the charge that he has given me. And on that day, I want to know that I have done everything I possibly can to make sure that you as a church are as beautiful and radiant as you could possibly be when you stand before him. And so guys, I want you to know, I live in the fear of the Lord. All that I am is known by him. I live with integrity before before Christ, and if you're really honest, you know that I live with integrity before you too. So put your boast in me, put your confidence in me again as your apostle. Don't look at the outward, shallow visions of success that matter little ultimately in eternity. It's faithfulness to the things that matter for eternity, that truly matter, and the power of God at work sustaining me. Put your confidence in me again. You see, at the end of, this, at the, end of the day, I am controlled by Christ's love. I cannot but be faithful to his call. I know I will suffer more. I know I will be weaker still but I cannot do anything else. I am bound and I am directed by Christ's love. Why? Because I was an enemy. I was his enemy and he died to save me. Now I am learning to die to myself as I daily learn to live for others. And so are you. So we no longer look at anyone through the eyes of this world. We're eternal beings living in a temporary world. If anyone is in Christ, you have transitioned from this life into eternity. You have been created anew for the world to come. And so let's relate to one another in this family through eyes of faith. That's what Christ has been doing all along. He's been reconciling the world to himself that through his life and through his death, he obliterated the barrier of sin between us and God. And he brought about our union again. Now I live under his charge to extend the reconciliation that Christ won as far and as wide as I can. He sends us, church, out as his ambassadors. Not like the ambassadors of our day where Caesar would sit on his throne waiting for ambassadors from different villages to come to him. No, 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 no. Christ as a king sends out ambassadors of good news into the towns to welcome others into life with God. God is continuing his great work of reconciliation through our lives as a church. But friends, we have to live it out ourselves. Reconciliation isn't just a doctrine that we believe. It's a task that we live every day we live in every relationship we live in. And so I urge you, church, be reconciled to God. And in faithfulness to your salvation and reconciliation to Him, be reconciled to one another and to me as Paul as well. Amen. Something different, hey? You've just gone through five chapters of 2 Corinthians and hopefully caught something of Paul's father heart for the church. I'm going to land us by, um, by, by just pulling on two points that I want to speak to us 
having kind of allowed five chapters to wash over us. Um, first, let me just grab a sip of water. Give you a chance to digest. That was a lot of info. I wonder if we can relate as a society as we get sucked into our culture of living lives primarily focused and centered on the good life. And Paul reminds us as a church, and he reminds them as a church and us as well, of actually looking through this facade, this veil of the good life, shallow and temporary and fleeting as it truly is, to see one another and to see what's most important in this life in light of who Jesus is, what he's done for us in all of eternity. Paul lived like that. I, I love something of Paul's father heart for the church. It would have been so easy for Paul to just give up and move on. I mean, he wrote them 1 Corinthians. They didn't respond so well. He visited them again. That didn't go so well. He wrote them the severe letter. That was pretty tough. Now he writes them to I mean, how easy would it have been to just go through the open door in Troas and just preach there instead? But he doesn't. I want to say to us the first thing that I see in this letter that is so helpful for us this morning, and helpful for us in our, in our lens as fathers too, but for all of us as Christ followers is this, that we should have more faith for broken relationships in the church. We should have more faith for broken relationships in the church. Look at Paul's faith for reconciliation when there was brokenness in their relationship. We live in a culture where relationships are increasingly disposable. We throw them away. Somebody says something hurtful or offensive to us, does something. It's throwaway culture. It's cancel them and move on. Find someone else who will agree with me. Find someone else who will affirm me just as I am. Paul didn't live like that. Paul, look at um, the, the little bit you heard there about the one, the sinner who needs to be restored. Don't let Satan get a wedge in there. Look how Paul makes it, he said, make sure you affirm your love for him as well. Paul fought to see broken relationships, bro relationships where there was sin involved, where there was genuine like wrong. Paul fought, even in the context of sin and wrong, to be reconciled, to see the gospel be the loudest voice in the relationship and not poor human behavior. Broken relationships that are unhealed hurt the mission of God in the world. And 2 Corinthians is a letter fighting for reconciliation through confrontation. Not like, like I'm not talking about angry, warlike confrontation, but actually it's so tempting to just sweep stuff under the carpet, pretend that it never happened, and then just not hang out with that person again or take them off your Facebook, whatever you want to do, you know? Paul sat down. He had the coffee. He had the awkward conversation that said, hey, when you did this, it hurt me, and that was wrong, and I need you to know about it so that we can forgive each other and we can continue caring for one another. He didn't allow the disagreements and the, con and, and, and the hurts and the wounds and the schemes of the devil to be the, the, the last most powerful word in the way in which he did relationships with the church. He fought to reconcile. 
He, he fought to serve and love the church even when they wanted to walk away from him. He doesn't allow any of that to have the final say in his relationships. The gospel is the greatest shaping force in the way that Paul did relationships. And I want to say to you, fathers, the gospel has to be the loudest shaping force in the way we father as well. The gospel that anticipates sinfulness, that anticipates we let each other down, that anticipates that I am not the perfect father and my kids are not the perfect kids, but makes room for grace in that place and love more powerful than sin and reconciliation and life and community. And so I put to you today, one of the things we have to see as we look at 2 Corinthians is we need more faithful broken relationships. Worth just stopping for a second. Are there relationships in your life where sin mistakes are shaping the relationship more than the gospel. What does it look like to put the gospel at the center of that relationship and to trust like Paul for the Holy Spirit to be the oil in faith that works those tensions out? helpful to just squirm a little bit and just think, is this us? And then I want to put you, I want to resolve today. What does it look like on you to go into as far as it's possible on you to see, put the gospel at the center and have another go? Obviously, this is not true of every relationship and there are some really toxic ones that I'm not, don't hear what I'm not saying. I just wonder if for some of us, we, we've been more dictated to by the way our culture does relationships than the gospel. And the second thing is this, the second thing I want to draw us to here that Paul spoke of. The way in which Paul was so bold in calling the church from their sinfulness wasn't on the basis of his excellent oratory skills. It was simply on the basis of his confidence in the work that Jesus had done in transforming the hearts of Christ followers. If you are in Christ, Paul would say, yes, I was like the pen, but Jesus was the author and the Spirit was the permanent ink that transformed your heart. So Paul had a faith to write to the church church and to exhort them and to call them to more when they had settled in their lives for, for lives that were unchristlike. Paul called them to more, not on the basis of a law or you must or you have to, but rather from this basis. Don't you know the power of Christ inside of you? Don't you know the work of the Spirit in your hearts? Do you not know that you are, in fact, if you are in Christ, a new creation, that this kind of behavior is incompatible with fundamentally who you are in Christ? Paul's confidence in calling the church to more was rooted in his confidence in the gospel's ability to transform everything about the church. And I put that to us today because I think for us, it's helpful to realize that there is no more powerful shaping force in your life if you're a Christ follower than the, than the power of Christ and the work of the Spirit in you. Sometimes it feels as a Christian like, am I ever making progress? Do you ever feel like that? I, I feel like that all the time. And yet Paul would remind us today, you are a new creation. 
Christ is the author of the transforming work in your life. It was done by the power of the Holy Spirit, and nothing is going to get in the way of what Jesus is ultimately doing in you. And so church, lift your heads. Go another round fighting sin. You're you're already forgiven. There is no condemnation over you. You carry no shame. But we get to rely on God for his sustaining power, like Paul did, in the midst of our weakness, as we're empowered to live uh, lives that honor Christ. And so I don't know what it is, what you're struggling with in your sanctification. But I know that Christ is the author of your salvation. Jesus began a good work in you. High schoolers, high schoolers, you've got to know this. As a young person, you've come to faith. God has graciously rescued you. But he has begun a work in you that nothing in our culture can stop. It is the permanent ink of the Holy Spirit at work transforming your heart. And so I would encourage you, this is a supernatural work of God. Pray, lean in, know that you are 100% forgiven. Every time you mess up, every time you blow it again, you come to Christ and you lean on Him and you say to Him, Christ, I've blown it again, I'm sorry, but I know that's not the loudest voice in my life. You have made me a new person. I am a new creature in you. Your spirit is within me. And so Christ, would you forgive me and and help me next time to live in your ways as well? I want to call us to have more faith for our own transformation as Christ followers. I know our culture is a strong shaping force in all of our lives, but the gospel is louder. The spirit of God is stronger within you. Christ is the author of the work that God is doing in your life. And nothing will get in the way of it. So lean into him. Work with him as he works within you to see you transform more and more into Christ-likeness. If you're not a Christian and you're listening in, this is the essence of Christianity. Paul would say, I was an enemy of of Jesus. I was that bad. And while I was his enemy, he died for me. He loved me in spite of my enmity toward him. There is nothing that I did to deserve this, but he died for me and he loved me. And so now that I have received his love and I have received his forgiveness, I am in a sense constrained by his love. I live a life in worship of Christ and in love and service of others because I'm constrained by the love of Christ. In a world that is increasingly living for itself, Jesus has made a way for us to live for Christ and to live to serve others and in in, in fact to become like him in nature and if you're not a Christ follower and you're listening in that is the invitation of the gospel to be freed from your own love of self to be able to live a life in love and service of others which you know as well as I do is the most impossibly difficult thing to do on your own and yet Christ has made a way for us can I pray for us can, can we stand? A little bit different message today. We need some energy as we come to prayer. I'm going to pray for us.
So let's, I'll, I'll lead us through three prayers this morning. Brief prayers, but perhaps for those who are far from Christ. To be able to come home like Paul did. Then for us as a church generally, that we would be able to to join in this mission of, of living and serving selflessly outward into our community and the lives of those that are placed around us. And then perhaps in particular those who are struggling with broken relationships. And you realize you need something in Christ to go another round in the gospel. So let's come before him. Father, I lift up to, to you this morning those who are far from you. Those who would say, I'm an enemy of Christ in some ways. I haven't lived for you. I've been on my own mission. Actually, I'm living for myself. I'm not living for you, Jesus. And I'm not living a life in service of others. But Christ, I long to. And I recognize this morning that the same way you conquered Paul, that you died for me while I did nothing to deserve it. You poured out your life on the cross. You died in my place in order that I, like Paul, would be resurrected into eternal life with you. And Christ, today I want to receive that life. Today I want to say, Lord, let it be true of me. Let it be true of me that your life and your death would count for mine. And that I would be, in a sense, put into you the same way Paul was conquered and put into you, Christ. Would you put my life into your life? That I would be in Christ, with Christ. And Jesus, you would begin to transform my heart, to, to forgive my sinfulness, to begin to transform my heart that I might be able to love selflessly and live and serve selflessly in the way in which you did Christ. So Jesus, conquer me this morning as I choose to live for you. And then for us as a church, Lord, we recognize the creep of the good life to hog our priorities and to, 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 to monopolize the affections of our hearts. And this morning, Lord Jesus, would you give us a fresh vision of the spiritual reality, the ultimate eternal reality of our lives, not just this temporary one, and that you would remind us of what's most important in life. And that, God, you would, you would sweep us up freshly to live lives on mission with you, to live lives like Paul as ambassadors for the gospel. Lives where our thoughts and our prayers center around others and their well-being and the power of the gospel to transform their lives. God, would you freshly reawaken us to your mission in our world and even in our valley, Lord Jesus. And then to those specific people this morning who may be struggling because you've, maybe you've blown it. Maybe someone else blew it in your life and they're living under shame and you're withholding forgiveness. Forgive, forgiving someone doesn't mean you endorse what they've done. It doesn't mean you say that they were right. And it doesn't mean you let it happen again. You can release them to Christ. 
I wonder if there's just some relationships. You want to just, I'm going to give you a second to privately pray your prayers to Jesus right now. Christ, this is the person. Would you give me courage to have the awkward conversation like Paul did again and again if need be? That the gospel would be the loudest voice in this friendship, in this relationship, and not either of our sinfulness. And then one last prayer, Lord, for fathers who want to represent you to their sons and daughters. I pray you would sustain us like you sustained Paul. It feels at times like there's an all-out war on masculinity in our culture. And yet something of masculinity in its most redeemed form is beautiful and glorious and reflective of you, Father. And so, Father, I ask that you would restore us and give us courage to, like Paul, love and serve selflessly into our families. Give us a fresh vision of what it means to be servant fathers, benevolent fathers in our relationships, all of them, but especially to our wives and children, Lord. Ask this in your name, Jesus. Amen.